Today on Stronger Than Reason, we'll look at New Order's second album, Power, Corruption, and Lies. Welcome to Stronger Than Reason. So today we're going to once again talk about New Order, who were for many years my favorite band. If I tallied up all the hours I spent listening to them, it would probably dwarf the time I spent listening to any other band. Although KMFDM would be close just because they have so much material. In fact, these two bands constitute a disproportionately large chunk of my music collection. I remember one friend being shocked that I had over a linear foot of KMFDM CDs on my shelf. And really, that was just half their current catalog. That was a long time ago. Uh, I never bought a physical copy of anything after Attack. The fact is, they just have a ton of albums. And New Order were similar back in the day. They had a lot of albums, singles, compilations, and just weird stuff. Some of which I showed in the episodes I did about technique and substance. Much like KMFDM, my New Order collection pretty much topped out at the millennium. And why is that? Well, for one, my listening habits changed. Uh, I got an iPod. I started buying music on iTunes, maybe foolishly. And for another, New Order itself changed in ways that I, I wasn't completely on board with. So I was more or less put off of them by Republic, which I think was a pretty terrible album. And I was going to grab it off my shelf and show it at this point uh, on the video, but I, I can't even look at it. The cover just irritates me. So I, I didn't even want to bring it out. Um, but it was definitely not worth the four-year wait. My opinion has been bolstered by the memoirs written by Peter Hook and Stephen Morris. They confirm that Republic was more or less entirely rewritten by Bernard Sumner and producer Stephen Haig. To me, it sounded like generic warmed over electronic and i mean electronic as in barney's side project with johnny marr not ever pertaining to electrons but in fact the whole album does sound quite electronic in that second sense too it should come with a notice that no real musical instruments were harmed in its making in fact i think every sound on republic apart from barney's voice and the very few instances of hooky's bass was artificial it's essentially the 1993 equivalent of a 12-year-old puttering around with GarageBand. There's just nothing organic. There's no human grooves. There's no mistakes. It's a New Order album in name only. Really a solo project by Barney, who for whatever reason decided to share part of the pie with Stephen Haig. And as a fan, I didn't want to listen to Stephen Haig's song ideas. He was the producer. He was supposed to be transparent to the whole process. I didn't care about him. I wanted to hear the band, and not just Barney, but the whole band. And I noticed that starting with Republic, Barney's songs had a, a vanilla sameness about them. They were all these sort of bland verse-chorus-verse affairs. They all kind of sounded the same. They were heavy on the synth pads. There was very little experimentation. And he somehow always found a way to kill Hookie's bass, which was, to me, just as much a part of the New Order sound as Barney's vocals. And also, don't forget that Republic came out in the wake of grunge and the ensuing enrockification of all popular music. I mean, it came out in 1993, the same year that Depeche Mode released Songs of Faith and Devotion, which was all about the rock, despite them being a synth-oriented band. So... 
Yeah, I get that New Order weren't following industry trends, but to make something so incredibly irrelevant as Republic was a new kind of tone deafness. You know, for a band that spent a career trying to meld rock elements into dance music, they picked the worst possible time to to ignore the rock. So yeah, I think Republic is overproduced with no distortion, with no teeth whatsoever. The funny thing is that New Order would finally join the rock revival in 2000 or so when they would reunite to release Get Ready. And I don't even remember exactly what year it was. I was kind of off the train at that point. But that was an album with plenty of noisy guitar and live drums. And it would even feature Billy Corgan. But for me, it would be too little too late. And they would then start monkeying around with their lineup. And the new order that I knew and loved as a kid would be no more. And I'm definitely not down with what they've become today, which is, in my mind, the world's second greatest New Order tribute band after Peter Hook and the Light, who at least don't play the same dozen songs at every concert. But that's another story entirely. Today, I want to dip into New Order's earlier catalog. Now, you may well ask, why am I not starting at the beginning, either with New Order's first studio album, Movement, or even further back when they released Unknown Pleasures as Joy Division? And the answer is, because I want to jump around. I'm just going in my own order in terms of how loudly these different albums speak to me. So I started with my childhood favorite, Substance, way back in episode 3, and moved on to my teenage favorite, Technique, in episode 27. I guess my next favorite album has got to be their second album, which they released in 1983. And of course, I mean Power, Corruption, and Lies. And why is that? So what's so special about this album? Um, I think this boils down to this being the first studio album that actually sounds like New Order. Their first album, Movement, as all fans know, was written and recorded immediately following the death of Joy Division's frontman, Ian Curtis. And as such... It sounds very much like a Joy Division record, both in the songwriting and the performance, as well as the production. So Martin Hannett produced Movement as he produced Joy Division's two studio albums, and evidently he wasn't very motivated to make their new band sound any different. So Movement sounds a lot like Joy Division without Ian, but with Barney and Hookie doing their best Ian impersonations. And let's face it, It wasn't really easy to replace Ian. So the results on movement are kind of murky at best. And by the way, I've never heard an explanation for that title, movement. As far as I know, the band's never said anything about it. So I don't know if they mean it like a musical movement or maybe as in taking a dump. But thinking about it, I don't think it's either. I I think right around that time when movement came out, they also released a Joy Division compilation album one that would collect a lot of their rare and hard-to-find tracks, along with a recording of their last performance, their last live performance. And that compilation album was called Still. So to me, these two albums came out together at almost the same time, and the meaning is now clear. So Joy Division, as such, was now Still, but with New Order, we had some movement. And it kind of makes sense in that way. But anyway... Then they made Power, Corruption, and Lies, which I'm going to henceforth refer to as PCL for my own sanity. By the way, I think that name is pretty meaningless. I understand they used to just write down cool phrases that they thought of as they recorded. 
and someone wrote that down and it just became the album title. Uh, I don't think it has anything to do with lyrical content or anything. <laughs> I think they really didn't overthink it. Uh, but on this album, like I said, they really turned a corner. Um, they weren't aping the Joy Division sound anymore. They fully embraced sequencers and keyboards and were using them in interesting experimental ways that they just never had before as Joy Division. And these songs on this album, I think, are more upbeat. And most importantly, though, Barney's vocals no longer sound like Ian. So on this album, he literally found his own voice. And once he did, it was different, but it was still compelling, just in a, another way. So PCL would chart a new heading for the band and set them off into exciting new territory. And it would become a marriage of what they knew before, kind of as that post-punk rock god thing, but with a newer sort of electronic music that was enabled by all of this emerging technology. So synthesizers, samplers, and sequencers that just hadn't been around before. So what was my first experience with this album? Well, if you recall, I came into New Order like most people did through Substance, which I'm sure even today is their best-selling album overall. Though it's not a studio album, and it's not even a best of, it's a compilation of all of their 12-inch singles up through 1987. So I think I said this before in the Substance episode, but it's a great story. And legend has it that Tony Wilson, who is the head of Factory Records, willed Substance into being because he wanted to listen to New Order singles on his car's fancy new CD player. And the band went along with it because it meant they could get paid for an album without doing any work. And lo, their best-selling LP was born. And you can hear all about that in episode three and much poorer audio quality. Now I realize, I do realize that the content of this show really hasn't improved much in the past year, but you have to admit, I learned a thing or two about how to make a podcast sound better. Um, anyway, yeah, those early episodes, very hard to listen to, but it gradually dawned on me as a budding New Order fan that the band had released a lot of other material, mainly in the form of Studio albums, you know, albums that weren't substance. So, you know, albums, those things bands would typically hole up and record and then promote with long tours, which New Order may or may not have always done because they just chose to do things differently most of the time. So I did go through a period early on where I gathered what little dough I had and I set about buying the five albums that they had recorded to that point. And I distinctly remember going to buy... PCL. It was during a visit to my sister's college. If I recall, I had driven the family car out there to see her and we hung out for the day. And eventually, inevitably, I asked her if we could go to a music store. And I think we went to the mall and I came home with PCL. And I remember playing it in the car on my way home. I actually bought the cassette copy first. Uh, but this CD copy that I'm showing here is just as crappy. Trust me, we'll talk about that. So I live in the United States, so my copies had some differences to the official factory version. For one, as you can see, they printed the band name and album title on the front cover. Naturally, the original didn't have this. Uh, New Order's designer, Peter Saville, was renowned for rarely having any sort of useful information on a New Order sleeve. But their American label, Quest, was a bit more keen on telling customers what it was they were buying. So it helped me in any case, since I 
didn't know this album existed. I never saw it before and didn't know what it looked like. So I appreciated some sort of information there. Um, Quest, by the way, was run by the legendary producer Quincy Jones, who produced Michael Jackson's Thriller, among a lot of other stuff. And he just took an inexplicable shine to this little band from Manchester for some reason. He held New Order in high regard. And one interesting thing I know about Quincy, um, other than that he's a super cool guy who I'm sure can tell incredible stories, but his middle name is Delight. And I'm not kidding. His middle name really is Delight. Check it out for yourself. But anyway, (laughs) the other strange thing about my copy was the track list because Quest added Blue Monday to the end of side one and it's dub B-side, The Beach, to the end of side two. And it's been argued that this disturbs the album's flow. And I can get behind that. Uh, It definitely was not what the band intended at this point in their career. They didn't believe in putting singles on albums. Uh, And that may sound contradictory, like aren't singles meant to promote albums? And of course they are uh, normally. But in New Order's punk-informed thinking at the time, Charging a fan for the same song twice was just a lousy deal for the fan. So they didn't want to do it. Uh, they would much rather have the fan pay for each song once. And, uh, you know, it does make a kind of sense, but only if you don't really care about pushing up those sound scan numbers. But New Order and Factory in general were not known for their good business sense. To them, what they were doing really wasn't about business at all. It was about art. They wanted to create art. And that's probably why they created amazing art and really changed the culture, but, you know, went out of business. But regardless, Quincy or someone added those two tracks on my cassette copy, and here you can see they're also on my CD copy. And of course, at the time, I had no idea that that was unusual. It wasn't until I got online and studied a few discographies that I'd noticed that they weren't supposed to be there, that this was really an eight-track album. And at the time, I was just like, ah, you know, I have these two tracks on Substance. That's cool. It's just more music for my dollar. I wasn't such a purist at the time that I was bothered by any of that. But driving home, listening to this record for the first time, my impression was that it was an interesting listen. The songs were varied. There was rock. There was dance music. There were some ballads. There was some experimental weird stuff. And there was even a bit of jazz, and maybe that last was Quincy's influence, since he came from the world of jazz, hard to say. But it was much more varied than, say, Republic, and I just can't stop dunking on that album. But there were also a variety of moods here. Some were more aggressive than others, some were more laid back, uh, some were party time, some were pretty. And in general, it was just a huge departure from movement, which sounded to me like second-rate Joy Division with muddy vocals. Just, you know, one dirge after another, more or less, which was no fault to the band. It's amazing they even managed to make that album under the circumstances, especially so soon after Ian passed away. But you got to admit, movement uh, is a far cry from the music on PCL. So overall, when I think of this album now, I think of it as being pretty upbeat, pretty positive, And I think the track by track will bear that out. But first, let's talk about the artwork a little bit, because of course there's a story here. And this is a painting. This is a painting called A Basket of Roses by the French artist Henri 
Fontaine Latour, which is in the National Gallery of London. And at first it might seem strange that a popular music combo would use an oil painting from 1890 as the cover of their new technologically driven masterpiece. But that's exactly the juxtaposition that Peter Saville was going for. So once he decided he wanted to use the painting, there was the small matter of securing the rights. And legend has it that he got stonewalled by the National Heritage Trust. So he had to call upon the intervention of a master schmoozer. In this case, the label boss and all-around talking head, Tony Wilson. So Tony called the museum, I like to imagine, in a huff, and pointedly asked them who owned the painting. And the rep told him that ultimately it was owned by the people of Britain. And Tony famously replied, well, the people want it. And finding no fault with that logic, they granted the rights and the painting made it to the cover. So (laughs) it's a great story. If you look carefully, though, there are some funny colored squares here in the upper right. And needless to say, these were not in the original painting. They were a twist added by Peter Saville. It's, in fact, a color code, a simple substitution cipher. And the key is on the back cover of the LP. But of course, as you saw earlier, it's not on this crappy Quest CD I have here, but on the original factory version of the album. And I don't have a factory copy, but I do have this instead, which is the book Factory Records, The Complete Graphic Album by Matthew Robertson. And here on the cover, wouldn't you know it, is the color key. This uh, is essentially the back cover of the original PCL album that they reproduced as the book cover here. And uh, as you can see, this cover even emulates the floppy disk motif, which Saville first used on the Blue Monday single to great effect. And to uh, possibly repeat myself here, legend has it that Blue Monday's die-cut floppy disk sleeve was so expensive to produce that Factory actually lost a few pence on every copy sold. And naturally, they didn't worry about that only to have it go on to become the best-selling 12-inch single of all time. And I say that's a legend because it's never really been proved, and probably because Factory wasn't very keen on keeping detailed business records. But as Tony Wilson said, if you ever have to choose between reality and legend, always choose the legend. Anyway, um, this is really an amazing book. It's it's quite thick. I don't see, know if you can tell. It's almost an inch thick. Uh, And there are sleeve designs in here from Peter Saville, of course, but also from legendary firms like Octavo, Central Station, Johnson Panas, and many more. It's a beautiful book, truly a coffee table art book. And if you're a fan of Factory or just, uh, you know, music sleeve art in general, it's a great book to look through. Uh, Factory gave Peter Saville and all their designers... A huge amount of leeway and what they were allowed to do for their sleeves and in fact Saville often didn't even discuss the cover designs with bands he just presented it to them as a done thing so factory was something of an experiment in unbridled artistic freedom both in terms of the music and in terms of the visual art so uh, anyway this is a really cool book and you can use this color key to decode Uh, these codes on the cover of Power, Corruption, and Lies. And it turns out that the blocks here on the front cover say FAC 
75, FAC 75, which is this album's factory catalog number. So factory, of course, was something of a, you know, a boutique record label and their cover art would frequently announce that it was a factory release in some way and often prominently display the catalog number. And the factory catalog was a work of art in itself. Tony Wilson had a system for numbering, so Joy Division and New Order were the most prominent bands on the label, so he reserved the multiples of 25 for their albums. And most of New Order singles ended in three. For instance, Blue Monday was Fact 33. Numbers ending in one were for special projects, so you had the legendary Hacienda nightclub, which New Order owned, as Fact 51. And there were also numbers allocated for lawsuits, films, stationery, and in one instance, a cat, which was FAC 191. Anyway, the inner sleeve of the PCLLP was all black with a color code along one edge that read New Order, Power, Corruption, and Lies. So, you know, you had to do a little decoding to figure out what record you bought, which I'm sure was fun for everyone. But don't worry, if you were really lazy enough, the actual titles did appear on the disc label. So all hope wasn't completely lost if you couldn't figure it out. Uh, Peter Saville would reuse that color code on a few other contemporary releases like the singles for Blue Monday and Confusion, as well as the album From the Hip by Section 25, which was another factory band. And if all of this sounds terribly cryptic, that's because it was. I mentioned this in previous episodes, but Saville's idea was to promote New Order as a known secret of sorts. So not having information on the cover was itself a way to distinguish the band. And it also afforded him a nice clean canvas to work with, not having to clutter it up with text. And he may have gotten that idea from the band members themselves who were famously uninterested in talking to the music press. So by their logic, the only questions they would be asked would be about Ian's death. And they simply didn't want to deal with that. So they got a reputation for being aloof. And Saville took that idea and ran with it. Uh, Of course, he'd subvert that idea on their next album, Low Life, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. So, all right, that's enough high concept art talk. I don't want someone to walk in here and give me an MFA. So let's dig into the music. The first track on here is one of my all-time favorites. And it's a great example of New Order being poppy, without being poppy. And the song is called Age of Consent. And it grabs you from the start with a classic Peter Hook bass line and an absolutely blistering drum pattern from Stephen Morris. And I have to start with Peter here. How can you honestly have New Order without him? (laughs) I mean, the short answer is you can't, right? Without fundamentally changing what New Order is, which I'm not cool with. Um, If it isn't clear from this song, He's pretty unusual for a bassist. For one thing, he doesn't really play bass parts. He plays much higher on the neck, so it sounds more like a baritone guitar. And for another, he plays a lot of melody, not rhythm so much. He's he's like not holding down the rhythm. One of Barney's nicknames for him back in the day was Mr. Melody. And I mentioned this before, but his idiosyncratic approach to bass stemmed from having lousy gear back in the Joy Division days. So... It turned out Barney played his guitar so loudly that Hookie had to play higher on the bass in order to be heard at all. And it became a habit, and it eventually became 
part of his signature sound. So you won't see Peter laying down the funk, doing a lot of popping and slapping. He's pretty much the opposite of Flea. Uh, the other thing he does is he plays through an electro harmonics clone theory pedal. So his sound always has a bit of chorus to it. And that makes his bass immediately recognizable. And here on this song, Age of Consent, it drives a lot of the melody. And Barney comes in with a, a typically tentative vocal, which is a nice counterpoint to what Hookie's playing. And the lyrics appear to be about communication or lack thereof. It's hard to say because his lyrics tend to be very abstract. Jillian Gilbert is on the keys here with absolutely beautiful leads in the chorus. But the chorus has no words. And that's what I mean about the song being poppy without being poppy. It's not quite following the golden rules of pop. And for more on those, please go read the manual by the KLF. Uh, Go listen to the KLF episode for all of that fun stuff. But the New Order of 1983 were apt to break the rules, and that's one of the things I liked about them. They stopped doing that in the 90s. Like Blue Monday, for instance, didn't have a chorus at all, even a wordless chorus. And it tipped the scales at over seven minutes, which is unheard of for a single. I mean, singles had to be under three minutes to get any kind of radio play. But really, the band made Blue Monday for the clubs, not for the radio. And in the clubs, long 12-inch mixes were key. And obviously that gambit worked. And I'm not really going to dig into Blue Monday here, even though it's on this album, because I already covered it in episode three, and it's not technically part of this album. So check out that episode for more on that song. But back to Age of Consent, I love it because it's energetic, it's upbeat, and it's imperfect. Barney's voice cracks, but that's part of the charm, I think. And I also like the fact that the song in general sort of peters out about halfway through and then just sort of meanders around for a while and finally the band ends it on one more big chorus because it almost seems like they don't know what else to do with it so it's fun and unpredictable it's a classic early new order track it was awesome when they would play it live steven's drumming is next level and it's this is a song that definitely puts some air between them and joy division so on to track two which is we all stand This is definitely not a rock song any way you cut it. There are several versions of this song floating around. So you have the album version, you have the Peel Session version, and then you have the version as they did it live. And the album version is very jazzy. It's kind of a loose sort of dubby groove. Hookie is playing a couple overlapping bass parts. Jillian is playing some electric piano. Steven's laying down some very delayed out drums. And over it all, you have... Barney's vocals painting the picture of some kind of war situation. So like a forced march with soldiers or something, something. Who knows? I don't know. But the Peel Session version ups the jazz factor by adding some piano. But really, if you want to hear this song's full potential, you have to hear the live version. Specifically, the live version they played in Japan for their video release that they called Pump Full of Drugs. And I have the audio here as this weird bootleg that I found further pumped. And here, We All Stand is a dark and groovy masterpiece. And the key is that they kept the synth bass line from the Peel Sessions and just had Steven play this four-on-the-floor kick over it. So instead of like this laid-back, mellow, jazzy thing, it becomes like a snake slithering up the bite you in the ass. And seriously, 
If you haven't heard this version of We All Stand, do yourself a favor, pause this right now, go out on YouTube and find New Order's Pump Full of Drugs live in Japan. And I know it's on there because I checked right before recording this. I think it might be New Order's finest live moment ever. It's really that good. I guarantee it'll give you the chills. Barney's vocals are spot on, and he's just pissed enough to give it a great edge. All right, so I think we beat that song into the ground. Next up is The Village, uh, which Stephen Morris confirmed is named after The Village in the classic British TV series, The Prisoner, which I also highly recommend. In fact, I have it on DVD here because I got mad that they kept pulling it down from YouTube, but... This is one of the more amazing TV shows in history, if you're not familiar with it. Way ahead of its time. Uh, it outdid Lost, decades before Lost, in my opinion. And if you need any further indication of its importance in pop culture, The Simpsons devoted an episode to parodying it. So anyway, the song The Village is a fun little piece. It's upbeat. It's mostly synthesized. It's very major key. And... Uh, you know, maybe it's a welcome respite after the slowness of We All Stand. I find it to be really catchy. It's just a fun, cool track. And it fades out into the next track, which is 586, which interestingly starts with this weird bit, this slow kind of synth jam that goes on for nearly two minutes before sort of petering out. I don't know, a little interstitial bit. And then the real 586 fades in. Now, this is a song with an interesting history. It started as a bit of music that Barney and Steven made for the opening of the Hacienda in 1982. And that version was called Prime 586 by fans for years until it got a commercial release as a single in 1997 as Video 586. Now, I remember when this came out, I was on the old ceremony mailing list and we were just agog that someone decided to release this because it had been a legend for years it was very hard to find. Uh, I ran down to my local music store, and there it was. I snapped it up. The packaging is really cool. Um, it came out on Touch Records, and the cover was not by Peter Saville. Uh, it was by John Wozencroft, who was another designer in Factory's Orbit, though it has an obvious Peter Saville influence. Now, in the album, 586 starts with a pretty familiar sound, the synth pad that's prominent on Blue Monday, which is actually a sample lifted from Kraftwerk's Uranium. Uh, in fact, this album version is quite similar to Blue Monday. It has the same sort of Oompa Loompa kind of rhythm. It has an actual chorus, and it has a breakdown in the middle. Uh, there's also a pretty cool electric piano solo at the end. I really dig it. It's a bit more sophisticated than New Order's standard keyboard parts. And it ends in a really interesting way. It just gradually slows down in tempo until it just grinds to a halt. And that said, this is like We All Stand, and that there is a more interesting version out there, specifically the one that's on the Peel Sessions. It's just more raw. It has a harder beat. It's always been my go-to version of 586, and it has this cool backward bit before it really kicks into gear. So check that out. Now, 586 is interesting in that it's seen as a sort of prototype for Blue Monday because it shares those sounds, it shares the rhythm, and it is kind of a longer song that's primarily sequenced. So supposedly Blue Monday originated as the band's attempt to write a song that sequencers could play as an encore while the band themselves scarpered to the dressing room for drinks. 
and evidently 586 originated as a soundtrack to the Hacienda event I talked about. So maybe somewhere in there they share a common lineage, but if so, the band members haven't really made it clear what that is. Uh, One more thing about this song. Peter Hook claimed that the title was a reference to the bar counts in Ecstasy, which is a song on side two here. And I've listened to Ecstasy hundreds of times, and I have yet to hear where there is anything like a five count in it. So maybe I'm missing it completely, but Hooky, I declare bollocks. So on to side two then with a fan favorite, Your Silent Face. Now, the working title for this tune was KW1, which was short for the Kraftwerk one, meaning it was a bit of a Kraftwerk pastiche. Uh, This is a slower song. It's got some nice synth programming. It's got a really nice synth pad lead in it. Uh, Very, very lush, great keyboard sounds. And you also got to love that Barney drags out the melodica on this one. That thing was a staple in a lot of their older tunes, and especially live, and it it sadly missed. The chord progressions of this song are really good. It's a good song to kind of mellow out to, and it has one of my favorite New Order lyrics ever. You caught me at a bad time, so why don't you piss off? (laughs) That's awesome, and it pretty much sums up Barney's attitude about everything. But anyway, it's a cool song. It's maybe not my favorite song here, but it's not my least favorite either. So on to track seven, which is Ultraviolence, which of course gets its title from A Clockwork Orange, as so many things did back in the 80s. Uh, Classic tune. Uh, This this song is a bit of a darker track. Uh, I think uh, it maybe sounds to me the most like a Joy Division song of any of these tracks. Has a lot of like Tom Tom work by Steven, a lot of awesome hooky bass on it. Um, it's groovy. I see this in a way as being a study for murder, a song that would come out in a few years as a single and would be a much darker song, but along these kind of same lines. Uh, anyway, it's nice to have a bit of this aggressive energy on side two, which is definitely not evident on the next track, which is the aforementioned ecstasy. This is actually a really varied and upbeat little instrumental. Um, some of the early releases listed as Only the Lonely, which is a weird title. Uh, a little Roy Orbison there, maybe. It's got a bunch of different parts and these pseudo vocals that were done with a vocoder. So you can't really make out what's being said. But to me, it sounds like they're saying Lost in Space or some variations on that. The synth bass is pretty funky. There's not a lot of hookies bass except in certain parts, but it's a cool tune. Uh, I could see this song making a great theme song for a show about two robots who are forced to become roommates after a coronal mass ejection destroys the internet. That's exactly how I see this song. But anyway, let's go out with a bang with the final track, the aptly named Leave Me Alone. This has to be my favorite song here after Age of Consent. It's this mid-tempo thing, a wistful kind of guitar ballad. It's just really beautiful, and the guitar work is especially good, how they've interweaved the parts so that one follows the other. Uh, But Barney really nails the vocals. He gives the song a really plaintive, pleading sort of vibe, which honestly makes it pretty sad. It's a pretty sad song. And of course, this is the kind of lyric and vocal that Robert Smith could knock off in his sleep. And Barney doesn't hit that territory very often, but he 
can get there occasionally. And this song is proof. I think this song is very Cure-like. Uh, it's maybe a good song to listen to when you're feeling down or just want to crawl in a hole. And musically, though, it's very simple. It's one of the first songs I learned to play on guitar. I remember playing it in my little efficiency apartment, <laughs> the first apartment I ever really had. And it featured that dreaded B minor bar chord that troubles so many uh, guitarists who were just starting out. So it was a bit of a challenge at first, but I stuck with it. I would encourage any beginning guitarists to give it a try. This song is just C, D, B minor, and G. And it's a great example of how you just need a handful of chords to make a really effective song. Leave Me Alone is probably in my top 10 New Order tracks. And it's a good example of the kind of gem you'd find on their albums, but not necessarily on substance. And that's the album proper. Um, You know, singles-wise, Blue Monday was really the only contemporary single, though this album was preceded by some really great singles that I'll talk about when we discuss movement. Uh, It's funny that there's actually an entire album's worth of early singles and b-sides that came out in 1981 and 1982. Uh, But as far as I know, they weren't all collected onto one disc until the 2008 reissue of Movement. But we'll get to all that later. Uh, They really are some of my favorite New Order tracks. Uh, The band would follow this album with singles for Thieves Like Us and Murder uh, before releasing their next album, which would be Low Life in 1985. But that's a whole other show. And I think I already explained why I love this record. Uh, Essentially, it's New Order's first proper calling card. It's the first proper indication that they were breaking away from the old Joy Division sound and charting a new course. You know, one that would seek to blend rock and dance music in exciting new ways. At least until they'd come out with Republic in 1993. Anyway... (laughs) (laughs) There you have it, folks. My second favorite New Order album after Technique, Power, Corruption, and Lies. So I know I've gone into ridiculous detail about it, but I can't help it. I'm a New Order train spotter from way back, even before they appeared on the soundtrack to Train Spotting. You've been listening to Stronger Than Reason on YouTube or as an Apple or Spotify podcast. The show that isn't afraid to shamelessly promote itself on social media. Imagine that. That's right. And for those sweet summer children who think the internet isn't for shameless self-promotion, what planet are you living on? Planet I have no clue? Planet duh? Yeah, that's what I thought. (laughs) Seriously, thanks for listening, and until next time, stay strong.